Welcome to the Apartment Operators Podcast, where you can learn from experienced operators what it really means to be an apartment operator. No fluff, no sugarcoating, just the raw, unfiltered truth of the ups and downs of operating multifamily communities. Welcome, everybody, to the Apartment Operators Podcast. I'm your host, Joseph Godman, and today I have a personal mentor of mine, Andrew Cushman. Andrew, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Joseph. Glad to be here, man. Awesome. So for the audience that haven't heard about the great Andrew Cushman, <laughs> can you give a few minutes just to run down a little bit about yourself, your background and your portfolio kind of so everybody know what you're doing these days? Yeah, you know, I, I took the the standard route into real estate and got a chemical engineering degree. And then, uh, yeah, after about seven and a half years of that, I discovered flipping houses. And uh, we, when I say, whenever I say we, it's my wife and I, uh, we flipped our first property here in Southern California. It was, I think it was early 2007 and uh, made about as much as I did all year at my job. So I said, all right, that's it. I'm out of here, went in and quit. We did the flipping thing full time for about four years. And then we were, you know, we said, you know, this has been great, but uh, now we're kind of at the bottom of this recession. No one has equity anymore. Uh, deals are getting hard to find. There's a ton of competition. What's the next big thing? And we kind of looked around we said, well, we think it's going to be apartments because now, you know, eventually we're going to come out of this recession, which means household formation, job formation. Uh, no one can buy a house for the next seven years because they all got foreclosed on. And we still have uh, immigration. We still have population growth. So, you know, we think apartments are going to do really well. Uh, so we went and found a mentor. Um, just word of mouth. We actually we, we asked our single family mentor, hey, do you know someone who does apartments? And he's like, yeah, I do. Uh, and so we connected with him and uh, he, he taught us the business. And our first deal was uh, a mostly vacant 92 unit property on the other side of the country out in Georgia. And that was 2011. Since then, we've done a little over 1,800 units and have been full-time uh, apartment investors, I guess, uh, seven, seven years now, something like that. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for that. And uh, 92 mostly vacant units uh, for your first deal. That sounds like swinging for the fences. I wouldn't recommend anyone to do it that way. <laughs> Now, well, I should clarify, 92 units as a first deal, that's fine. Mostly vacant, no. So, Well, share a little bit more. Uh, why not? Um, you know, when you're doing your first deal, there's enough challenges to begin with uh, without adding on unnecessary ones. So, you know, un properties, especially in this economy, if a property is 75% vacant, odds are there's some serious things wrong. And if if part of what's wrong is the neighborhood, that's something you can't fix. So that that's that's one thing to be aware of. Uh, but you know, if you don't have a lot of experience in the business and you've got a property that's you know 50 years old and mostly vacant, you know the odds of you making mistakes on estimating the renovation is, is going to be much higher. The odds of you not knowing the uh, specialties of managing that type of property and making mistakes are going to be a lot higher. Uh, you're going to have more problems with vandalism, with crime. You're going to have you're going to have trouble getting getting a loan on the property. Uh, there's just so many things that you know done right can make a lot of money, but on your first deal uh, can also increase the chances that it doesn't work out so well for you. So, so what's your biggest takeaway from that deal, that first deal, with all the challenges that that went through? 
Well, you know, on the, for, for one thing, um, I'm glad I did it because it did end up, it did end up profitable. We sold it for uh, several times more than what we bought it for. Um, you know, we, we dramatically underestimated the rehab. So I learned a lot about, about, you know, how to do that, especially on older buildings. But the biggest takeaway is, is even though that deal was, uh, very challenging, probably the most stressful six months out of my life. Uh, I'm very, really, we're still super glad that we did it because without doing that deal, we wouldn't be here today. Uh, if we had given up or letting it fall through, you know, who knows where it would be, but the, the second deal is far easier than the first one. So that deal, as difficult as it was, it still ended well for us and the investors, and it's the one that got us started in the business. And every deal after that has been uh, easier because you know, we've never bought anything like that again. So, so okay, that's a that's a good segue. So, what do you buy these days? What is your preferred uh, um, profile of a deal these days? You know, unfortunately, what we've been buying for the last five years has now become very popular, and that's the uh, C plus to B uh, property uh, class value add properties, generally built 1980 to maybe two or you know 2000 or so. And my value add that could be. Uh, you know, generally that falls into two categories. That's, you know, management, meaning it's a property that isn't being well managed and we can improve on that and, or uh, it hasn't been upgraded or there's deferred maintenance or there's amenities or something that we can do to the physical asset to improve it and, and get higher rents. Okay. And like you said, this market, it makes that very competitive. So um, how do you go about, um, finding your next deal? The biggest thing for us is broker relationships. Uh, you know, when, and, and part of that is because we're looking at stuff that's generally 100 units and up. I mean, and, and most owners out of 100 units and up, you know, number one, they tend to be a little more sophisticated, so they're not very likely to sell you their property off of a yellow letter. And then, you know, the brokers spend their lives building relationships with all of these owners. They know, especially if it's a long-term broker, they know every owner of every property in their region. And we found it most effective to leverage those relationships. Now that's not necessarily just waiting for the email blast for the next listing. It's, and we do know we do look at those as well, but it's also, you know, having a good relationships so that and having the broker know what you, what is a good fit for you as a buyer so that when they talk to a seller, they can be like, oh, this property is a great fit for Joseph or this property is a great fit for Andrew. Let me just call them and see if we can put a deal together now, right? Because if the seller, some, in many cases, the seller can get, if the seller can just get their price, they're happy and they don't necessarily care about going through the whole marketing process. Um, so the number one is broker relationships. And then we are uh, in the process of, of, being, of setting up a system to be even a little bit more proactive as opposed to just you know, talking to our, our favorite brokers and catching up and say, oh yeah, hey, you know, he talked, I talked to the seller, it might be a good fit. We're actually gonna go out and make a list of properties that we like and then to give that to the brokers and say, hey, of the people, of these properties, who do you already have a good relationship with? Is there any way maybe we could just put a deal together? And kind of jump, instead of waiting for the seller to come to the broker and say, yeah, okay, I'm ready to sell, we're going to identify properties we know we already want and then go to them and say, go to the broker and go to the seller and say, Hey, let's see if we can put something together. 
Yeah, that's a great idea. Um, we've done the same thing uh, last year when we pointed out a property across the street from a property we already owned and told the broker, go get us that one. Uh, so, yep. so that was that was very a uh, uh, good strategy that we were able to capitalize on. Um, so let's talk about your current portfolio or your past portfolio. Um, can you give us a little bit of a, uh, our listeners like to hear some funny stories, some horror stories. Uh, um, give us a, a couple of nuggets of, of the things that uh, someday when we'll write a book about apartments, uh, we'll put those in. Um, you want just, just, just horror stories or, or something that, uh, or, or something that, uh, they, that we can learn, they can learn from or what uh, I've, I've got, I've got, got plenty of all of those. <laughs> I'm sure you do. <laughs> like most operators out there, just give us a couple of that come up to to mind. Well, um, you know, I think one of the most, uh, um, uh, you know, I talked about not buying properties in in rough neighborhoods or neighborhoods that you can't improve. And one of the things that uh, anyone who's watching the video can see this, but uh, what I'm holding in my hand is a bullet that I pulled out of the wall uh, of one of our properties um, when I was there on a visit. And uh, I keep that as a reminder that uh, I never ever buy in the hood. Uh, it's it, number one; those properties don't ever pencil out in real world like they do on the spreadsheet. And two, even if they did, they're just generally not worth the headache. Now there are, there is, there are very, there is a small subset of apartment investors that specialize in that type of stuff. And if, if you're that person and you, you have the fortitude for dealing with that kind of crap and that kind of tenant base and the stuff that goes along with that, and you and do specialize it and you get really good at it, you can make money at it. I'm not saying it's impossible, but in general, it's just not worth it. And it never works out as good as you think it will. Um, so that's that I have that sitting on my computer at all times. And uh, that actually that, that very same property, this is, um, uh, one of uh, one of my favorite stories is that property. It was a big property. It was over 300 units, so it had a nice big standalone leasing office, and it had skylights and all this stuff. And uh, one day, mid I mean, five o'clock in the afternoon, broad daylight, uh, someone who was pissed off because they weren't paying their rent, and we told them they had to leave, uh, climbed up on the roof of the building and threw Molotov cocktails through the skylights. And uh, attempted to, and, and attempted to burn down the leasing office. Uh, wow. They didn't burn it down, but they did burn it. Uh, so that was uh, that. That was a fun one. And uh, yeah, there's, there's plenty of stuff like plenty of stuff like that from those type of properties. So, uh, although yeah. I should say we only we only bought a couple like that, and that was in, in the beginning. And um, you know, those are long sold off. And uh, you know, nowadays we're in the the B class properties where, you know, you might probably the worst thing we see now is, you know, someone left their iPad on the front seat of their car and naturally someone, you know, grabbed it or something like that. So. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Uh, we have our own stories uh, that, that come with the properties and, and you're right. The rougher the property, the more extreme the stories are. Um, so, um, Let's talk a little bit about your operation, right? So I know you're the operator. You had 1,800 units recently before you sold a couple, and that's a big operation. So how does a uh, one or two men show kind of control that much uh, 
span of, of units? Uh, I mean, we, so we've got, um, the, the, one of the, probably the biggest key is we, we have a very good third party property management company. And we, you know, we lean on their resources a lot and they've kind of grown along with us. When we first hired them, they managed 3000 units. Now they manage 25,000 units and they've, uh, they've been really, they've actually maintained discipline as they've grown. I've seen some management companies be awesome at 3000 and then when they got to 20,000, they were horrible. Uh, but they haven't. And so we lean very heavily on them. And that's one of the reasons we, we try to buy properties that are hundred units and above so that that property can support its own full-time staff and management. And we're not, you know, we're not involved in the day-to-day -day process of, well, you know, okay, does this guy get $5 off his lease or, you know, and all that you know, just day-to-day -day admin stuff. And that's, that's part of being a, a true, an operator and an more of a, and really when I mean operator, it's almost asset manager where you're not, we're not handling the day-to-day -day operations of, Oh, we got a lease today or, you know, this unit has to be ready tomorrow. We are providing the leadership, the vision, the direction, uh, the funding, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff um, for, for the properties. And so how we manage that many units is, of course, we've got the on-site staff, but then there's regionals. And then uh, I'm still in touch with the, with the owners of the property management company. And there's also a renovation coordinator. And, you know, keeping all those people on the same page, we do weekly conference calls and we include the maintenance supervisor at each property. Everyone always tends to forget that guy or gal and they're very, very, they, they, in fact, think about it, they probably have more interaction with the residents than almost anybody else on the team once those residents move in. Uh, so we always bring them and they have a huge impact on your expenses. So we always wanna make sure the, the maintenance guys are, are, are part of the, you know, if you don't get left out. Uh, we do those, we do weekly calls. And then um, we, of course, I actually personally do go out and tour the properties generally once a quarter. Uh, you know, if something's, if it's something we've owned for five years and it's just cruising along, I might not visit as frequently, but then something that we just purchased that's in the middle of a renovation or repositioning, I might actually visit more frequently. Uh, so that's generally, you know, how we, how we manage that. Um, it's really, and then we actually did just bring on, um, I have, I have an office manager that's been with us for five or six years. She does a, an amazing job with a, a large variety of things. And then we just, uh, actually uh, just a month ago brought two additional people on to help with, uh, both asset management and to, uh, help increase the pipe, our deal pipeline and, and looking at new acquisitions. So. So um, just to touch back a little bit, you said you have weekly calls. Uh, who's on that call? Do you do that uh, one call for all the properties? Do you do a call per property per week? How does that yeah, look it's, like? It's, it's just every Tuesday is just a marathon of conference calls back to back to back to back. And it's, the, it's myself, it's the, all of the property staff. So that'd be the property manager, the leasing assistant, the maintenance supervisor, the maintenance tech. Um, literally everybody on, on site and then the regional manager for that property as well. And then if it's a property that's under renovation, the rehab coordinator is on that call as well. And so what generally what we do is we, our, our agenda is we, we run through anything renovation or maintenance related, and then we let the renovation guy go. And then we get, then we go over the, the, the weekly report and you know, how many leases did we get? How would we collect? 
you know, what was traffic turnover, all those kind of things. And then, and then any other issues that come up towards the end. And um, so, yeah, those are, those are for, for most properties, those are every week. Uh, and again, for the properties that, you know, are just, we've had them for four or five, six years, they're cruising along, they're way ahead of pro forma. And there's just not that much to talk about. Some, some of those properties are either every other week or once a month. Understood. And why did you decide to do that weekly meeting with everybody on site? Um, most of the operators I get to talk to are doing that with the regional, maybe someone from the corporate office of the property management, but they never get to the leasing agent and the maintenance tech, tech level. Um, what led you to that format and, and what do you see value coming out of those uh, because if you want to get the absolute truth of what's really happening, talk to the people who are actually on site every day. A regional manager, part of their job is to polish things up and present a nice picture to the owner. And the way to get around that is to have everybody on a call at the same time. And as long as you're halfway decent at asking questions, you will find out what is really going on and what the real issues are and you can be a much better operator second of all and i cannot tell you how many times i've had uh property level staff come to us and say you know you guys are like are the best owners we've ever worked with you actually listen to us you actually give us feedback you actually help us get things done and they're like, you know, most owners we never see, we never talk to, and it's all through the management company. And we do, we do, we let them know that the management company exists for a reason, and they are supposed to follow the, the chain of command. But that my job is to empower and enable them to do the, to be able to do the best they can at their jobs, and that's why that's why we're there. So, you know, I mean, and there's so many times where I have found things out because the maintenance guy is on the call and I asked a question or they just happened to blurt something out because that's another thing. The you know, original manager or anybody is cannot coach for, you know, two, three, four, five on-site staff of all what they can say and not say it's going to come out. Right. Especially, you know, the maintenance guy, he, he doesn't, whatever, he's not going to be, he's, you know there's no politic there yeah exactly you know the politics falls apart when you have every level right there at the same time and uh it, it gets very hard for somebody to to spin the the picture and present some, present something a little different than what it is so that's why we have that and like i said we i've got a list of managers who like we sold the property or something and they're like yeah i well you know, I've got one from Texas who's like, I'll move to Georgia to come work with you guys again. You know, uh, it, it also, it also builds, builds loyalty, um, and trust because they know, you know, there's been times where, you know, no, no management company is perfect and no individual is perfect. So there's been times where for whatever reason, the ma manager felt like a regional or someone else on the team. It just wasn't, happening the way it should or just an issue wasn't getting dealt with and they 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 ha they reach out to me and i'm able to solve that at a di and from a different angle or at a different level and and you know and really and, and you know keep them moving forward so um yeah don't uh, that's that's actually and you're right most people don't do that and um i think it's a missed opportunity and it it you know it it builds a lot of a lot of trust in a stronger team and i i will be clear though 
that's not me getting involved with, okay, how do we handle this work order? That's, that's not it. It's, it's team building, make sure everybody's on the same page, make sure everyone feels included. And again, it builds performance and loyalty and gives you a better idea of what's really happening. Yeah, and I'm sure it's great for employee retention, right? So people feel they get heard. It's great. So we talk to a lot of operators and we always have nuggets dropped in, in every podcast. And this, I, I just want to reiterate uh, um, what you said over here. This is probably the biggest gold nugget um, we've heard so far in, in the podcast. And that is, if you want to know what actually happens on site, you got to talk to the people on site. And, yeah. and uh, that's just phenomenal thank you for that um so you mentioned you're working with third-party property management um how did you go about finding them how did you interview what were you looking for when you were hiring a property management company i found the best way to find a property management company is when you're looking when you're talking with brokers and and, and you can substitute the you know lender for broker and you know lender broker whatever so when you're talking with lenders and brokers and let's say you're looking at a property maybe you're in you're, you're in dallas and you're looking at a property and you're new to the market and you need to need to find a management company what i did is i asked brokers and lenders hey if you were going to buy this property who are the top two or three management companies you would hire to rent to run it for you and i did that over and over again, and I built a, a list of who kept coming. And what happened is, is like the top, the same two or three companies came up over and over and over again. I'm like, these are the these are the three that I need to talk to. And so then I went to those top three, and I built a list of like 30 questions. And I went through and I interviewed them all. And then one became one really stood out above the others. And then I flew out to Atlanta and. Um, physically met with the owner of the company you know we went and had dinner and i basically we interviewed each other for an hour and a half to make sure it was a good fit and then we hired them and we've kept they in fact not only have we kept them on those properties but um, in another state we had a different management company which we eventually fired and then brought the Atlanta, the, the georgia management company out to handle those properties for us uh, so that actually ended up ended up being a, a very effective way of finding a good management company. That's great. So, so what are the two top two three qualities you're looking for in a property management company? What made that one stand out above all others? There's there's a couple. One is you want a management company that specializes in the same type of asset that you specialize in. You know, if you know, in a, a company that primarily manages A-class properties is not going to run your C-class deal the way it should be run. Uh, they're not going to they're not going to be good at the special tactics that that need to be employed to actually get the rent paid on a C-class property. They're probably going to run it too expensive. Uh, they're going to do things that just don't really apply to a C-class property and vice versa. Someone who's a company that specializes in C-class properties is not going to be really good at running an A. Uh, so they specialized in the C and the B space. Uh, and so we, that, we knew that's where we were and we liked that. The other thing was, uh, you know, the two founders of the company uh, had both had come from a fairly extensive previous background in property management and were very well known in, in the Southeast. Uh, every single person that I came across that knew them spoke very highly of them. Uh, they were also small enough where 
I'm working, I can, I can reach out to the owners at any time. I have their cell phone numbers and they answer, but they were also big enough to have the resources and the depth needed to handle issues when they come up, right? So let's say my manager gets in a car wreck and all of a sudden they're gone, right? Well, our management company will just bring in another manager to fill the hole for a while rather than our property sitting there with no manager because they have floating managers uh, that, that can, that are for that purpose of if, when there's an emergency opening at a property, they can just fill it right away now. And while we find a new permanent one, um, they also, you know, uh, charged us what we, you know, they, they charged us a very fair um, rate for, for managing the properties. Now at this point, it's, you know, we're at a decent enough scale, that helps, but even in the beginning, uh, they were they were. I think now we pay three percent. I think the first one we paid three and a half or four, uh, and then once we once we kept adding properties, it you know now it's just three three across the board. Um, and I, I could go on and on. I mean, and now I look at it and I say, you know, they have leverage that as a operator with just even a thousand or two thousand. You know, for us, you and I, it's like oh, two thousand units. Yeah, we're you know we feel pretty good about ourselves, but in the world of multifamily that's still really not much and so they can get leverage that I can't get because they have suppliers who when they when when they go to those suppliers and like all right hey we, we you know we manage 25,000 units now they can get incredible pricing which they just pass on to us as as the owner and so there's advantages there as well that's great thank you for that so with all that, you reached a scale of almost 2,000 units. Did the thought of self-managing ever cross your mind? What are your thoughts about self-management? Uh, generally speaking, I think it's a bad idea. And, it's, and, I, I, and there's, there's a handful of reasons for that. Um, now, now I, will, I will say, if, you know, if you're buying a fourplex and it's down the street from where you live, you know, fine. I still would. I, I we've got a single family rental a mile away. I don't so I don't manage that myself. But um, I generally think self management is a bad idea. Number one, there there's just there's just not a um, not a lot of money in it for for one. It's not a profit center. Uh, it it can be a a bit of a. a a balancer in different uh, in different markets, right? Um, you know, if you've got management income coming in, so as as a, I do understand that aspect as a, that or that appeal as a, as a business owner, uh, but generally speaking, there's not a lot of, of money in it. Uh, another reason is, you know, who are you? Are you a property? You know, are you a jack of all trades? Or are you an apartment owner and operator? So are you focusing on acquiring more properties and rapidly scaling that up to 1,000, 5,000, 10,000 units? Or are you also going to be trying to do property management and, and all these other things? And one of the, and then also what I just alluded to before is, is leverage, right? You know, for, for us, you know, if you come, like, for example, I came from flipping houses, right? And then first deal, 92 units. Like, oh, wow, I got 92 units. I, that's some leverage. No, it's not. Not really. <laughs> you know, for us, it feels big. But granted, especially in this economy, no one gives it, no one cares if you've got 90 units. Um, from the con so, so you can, again, just like leveraging broker relationships to get deals, and leverage the property management company to get better pricing and better service and, 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 you know, and, and then higher level contacts and all of that. And, and one of the things I often hear is, oh, well, 
you know, nobody, no one cares about my property like I do. So this is what I would say. All right, Joseph, you're married, right? You still like your wife? Very much. All right, good. So let's say, heaven forbid, you know, she gets a headache, goes into the hospital, and they're like, uh, you've got a brain tumor. It's benign, but we have to get it out, right? So, you know, you schedule the surgery. The day the surgery comes, she's on the table. You know, they're getting ready to, they're getting ready to, to, to you know, put her under and remove the tumor. And Joseph, you walk in, you put your hand, shoulder, hand on the shoulder of the surgeon. You're like, hey, buddy, you know what? I appreciate what you're doing here, but I care about her more than you, so I'm going to take care of this, right? Caring doesn't equal competence. That's so true. It does. It, it, yeah, I can't, when, when, when I, I can't tell you how many properties I've bought from guys who own 1,000 or 2,000 units and manage it themselves and there's so much management upside on that property because they candidly don't really know what they're doing. It is easy to do property management at a mediocre level. And that's what most people do. It's very hard to do it um, at an exceptional level. And there are operators out there that own 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 units that do it. Um, I, I, I could name a handful that do a fantastic job and, and they're very vertically integrated uh, and, for them, it does make sense and it does work. I would say for the average investor, especially someone who's just getting started at 50, 100, 200, 300, 400 units, your best bet is to hire a, the right property management company and closely work with them so that you can focus on scaling your acquisitions and your business and then learn the property management from them. And if at some point down the road, you know, you want to, uh, you want to start your own property management company and all that, that that's fine. Um, and I know that's always the ongoing argument. Um, you know, do you, you know, some guys absolutely love it. A lot of guys don't, it's pretty obvious to tell where, where I land. Uh, but you know, again, I, you know, I know some guys with five and seven and 10,000 units and they wouldn't, they wouldn't even think of touching property management. Cause like, why would I do that? I want to go buy a 30 million, $30 million property. I'm not going to waste my time, you know, making three or four or 5%, um, you know, trying to manage it. And then the final thing is too, when, as a syndicator, when you send out your offering memorandum, and you're self-managing and you're taking usually if it's self-management a four or five percent management fee some of the some of the more astute investors will look at that and say well, wait, wait, wait a second so you're going to get four or five percent no matter what happens with this property no matter whether i'm getting paid or not and you could just hire another company and pay three percent um that comes up too so that, that's just another factor yeah so uh, I like to just put it down very simple as a headaches to returns ratio. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and that is just, uh, I, I don't know how these guys do that for a fee management. Uh, I, I do have a little bit of a different approach and we've had that conversation in the past of when we get to the size of 1200, 1500 units, then we'll reevaluate if it's the time to take over or not. But it's definitely not a financial decision. You're not going to make money out of it compared to the brain damage it, it generates. Uh, but it's more of a brand control and quality control. And what I learned is if you work with the right property management company, you can still get that brand control and that uh, quality control without having to take everything in-house and, and bring the headache. Yeah, and you're you're absolutely right, and 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 we should we should clarify, 
you know, if what I'm talking about is not set it and forget it, right? You know, going back to our previous conversation about the weekly calls and the visits, we're working very closely with that property management company. We are not hiring them and then saying, all right, cool, send us the monthly report. Now, that won't work so well, no matter who's managing your company. You, you have to be a good asset manager, and then third party can work really well, if you hired the right one to start with. Yeah, um, I was talking about gold nuggets. This is just another one right here dropped by Andrew. Um, uh, Wait, I'm dropping property... money? Wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> property managing companies are, no matter how good they are, you can't just hand over the keys and forget about it. It's not going to work because uh, good companies go bad. Uh, uh, good managers goes bad. Um, just the wrong person at the wrong place uh, uh, could generate a lot of damage on your property. So you can't just set it and forget it. Like Andrew said, this is just was worth repeating again and again. Um, so I want to segue a little bit over to um, your residents, right? The people that live in your properties. Uh, do you do anything to encourage retention or leasing or any uh, great ideas that you guys do, uh, it, let's say events or, or specials or anything like that, that helps you attract and retain your residents? Well, yeah, one of the things that I try to impress on our managers is there should never be a day out of the year when the office isn't decorated for some some holiday, Right. And that could be the typical ones, 4th of July, Easter, Christmas, whatever. But any excuse, it can be, you know, St. Patrick's Day, National Pie Day, National Chocolate Day, whatever. We should be celebrating and decorated something at all times. Uh, just for the, the festive attitude and the, and the fun and, you know, giving, having an excuse to give people treats and all that. But, you know, we'll, we also run um, open houses. We've done stuff where local charities or groups or, um, will bring um, uh, you know, food to, to residents um, and, and part, or we'll do the same thing, partner with local businesses. We've opened up a property and ha actually had a small carnival on it one time, and that was actually exceedingly popular. We got a ton of leases out of that. Um, didn't, didn't cost us anything. Uh, wait, wait, don't. Don't just jump all over it, right? What do you mean a little carnival and how did it not cost you anything? Well, there was a, um, it was a community thing. And one of the, one of the big, it was, it was, this was in Texas. So it was a, a large local church. Um, you know, a lot of our residents went to that church and they partnered up and said, Hey, we're going to do like a Saturday carnival. And, you know, and we said, well, you, you know, we agreed that they could do it at our property. And so they set up fun, you know, games and, and food and like bounce houses and all that kind of stuff. And they did it at our property. And of course, all of our residents got to enjoy it, but it also brought in a ton of other people. And uh, that's probably, I, I don't remember the exact numbers. That's probably one of the most, most successful leasing days I've ever seen. Uh, and so that, you know, that worked out really well. But then, you know, it, even, even if it, it's not just about the leases, it's also just when people see the, property partnering and being active with the community and other aspects of the community it, it builds your community and people just want to stay people want to be a part of that um that's kind of more that, that that's that was kind of a special thing but you know, again we do a lot of open houses uh we try to you know we we do um celebrations we'll do dinners we'll do uh, breakfast on the go so maybe 
uh, there's one property where every, was it, I forget what day of the week, but like say every Thursday morning, our leasing assistant would be out there with little bags of, you know, donuts and whatever. So people just leaving for work could just grab it and eat breakfast and, you know, while they sat in Atlanta traffic um, and, and, you know, stuff like that. Uh, it, we try to do a lot of those, those type of things. So That's great. Um, what would be an average budget for you for those activities? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I can actually really answer that. I mean, I don't think any particular activity usually costs more than a couple hundred bucks if that because candidly a lot of times what we're doing is we're the vent we, we ask our vendors to donate the supplies and the materials so you know we'll have a vendor donate the materials and then our staff hands them out and so really it's, it costs our staff a little bit of time but the actual financial cost is minimal or maybe we do an open house or, or maybe we do a um Another thing we'll do frequently at some properties is like a movie night for, for the, you know, the kids. Um, and so, yeah, we might buy a hundred dollars worth of pizza and $50 worth of, you know, desserts and soda or something like that. And so it may have $150 um, for that event, which, you know, depends when you're at a hundred or 150 or 200 unit dollar, 200 unit property is fairly, you know, is insignificant, especially for the return and goodwill that you're getting. So most of this stuff is, at most a couple hundred dollars. In many cases, it's free. Yeah, so, so leveraging your vendors is, is a good point. Uh, we've done pool parties when we brought people from um, AT&T showed up and, uh -huh. and we had other vendors come in and they had gift cards and they had gifts and uh, we did a back to school. So we had a hairdresser come in and did free haircuts for the kids. So That's that was one. really... Uh, 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 like you said, engaging the community, engaging the residents, that's always great, uh, great ideas. Uh, so we have uh, um, a little bit more time. I wanted to kind of transition over to value add. I know almost everything you do has a value add component uh, part of it. Mm -hmm. Can you give us like two, three things that you guys like to do that increase income that is not just raising rents? Yeah, there's a, there's a handful of things. You know, one of them is washer dryers. Uh, I just saw a survey actually this past week that the, you know, there, there, there's, there's, a, there's, a, you know, there's demand for amenities and there's supply of amenities, right? And this, it was the survey, it matched up the two. And basically what it was saying, well, what do people actually want? And then what is actually supplied? And like uh, one of the ones was, um, you know, cat friendly apartments, right? Well, almost all apartments are cat friendly, but most residents actually don't care, right? So that was one where there was a mismatch. And on the flip side of that, the most in-demand amenity is in-unit washer dryers. Yet only about 13% of apartments have that. So that's one of the things that we look for is there a way to supply that amenity, whether it's, you know, if we can buy a property that has the connections to begin with, that's fantastic. But if we, if we don't, is there a way to add them? So we, we have one property that we purchased about a year ago that has the connections, but you know, many renters can't afford to buy their own, their own sets. So what we started doing is we started buying our own and, and you can do, you can, there's two ways to do this. You can, you can sign up with a vendor, and do a leasing program or you can do what we're actually trying on this one is we're just buying sets for like $650 and then it's an option to say hey we have a laundry room you can use but 
if you want for 40 bucks a month, you, you know, we will put these in and you can rent them, right? Well, those, those washer dryer sets pay for themselves in like 15 months. And then it's just, uh, then it's just, it's, uh, you know, additional free, in basically free income after that. And even if they break in three or four years, we've still made multiples of our money on that investment. So that's one is washer dryer connections. The other one really is, it kind of gets overlooked is just resident retention. So going back to what you're asking me about the, the open houses and the parties and the, and the, and the fun stuff, that's good for, it's great for drawing people in, but it's also good for resident retention because, you know, a vacant unit, you know, you, you put somebody in that unit and they're, they're paying you rent, but then that's also a unit that you don't have to turn, you don't have to repair, you don't have to do CapEx on. Um, so the biggest thing really for income is to just reduce resident turnover. Uh, but again, you know, washer dryers, you can do preferred parking, you can do, uh, you know, different things with cable billing, you know, you buy it in bulk, and then you sell it to the residents at a you know, slightly higher amount. Uh, you know, water billing is a big one we've gone through on some properties and just done individual metering and say, okay, you know, you pay what you use, pay for what you use. Uh, there's, I mean, in, in each, and it can be very property specific. We had one property that we were looking at, it was right on the freeway. And it was a, it was a great candidate for putting up a billboard uh, and doing, doing, you know, for paid advertising. So, you know, some stuff's very generic and you can look at it almost any property. And then there's other stuff that some properties have unique opportunities based on their size and location in the market. Awesome. Thank you. Um, let's take a look at the other side of that equation, um, reducing expenses. Yeah. One of our favorite ones is, is water saving devices. Um, you know, I'd say five years ago, we could plan on doing that at almost any property. Nowadays, it's already been done at a lot of properties. So it's not quite as a common thing as it used to be. But there's been, there's one property, we reduced the water bill by 60% just by going through and retrofitting all the toilets and the shower heads and just fixing all the leaks. So water saving is a big one. Uh, I already mentioned turnover. Generally, turnover is is one, I mean, outside of property taxes and, 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 uh, uh, payroll. payroll. Yeah. Thank you. That's what I was looking for. Turnover is really one of your biggest expenses because number one, like, like I said before, it drops your income, but two, you, you're, you've got a unit just sitting there vacant. Now you've got to even best case scenario, you've got to, you've got to paint it and clean it. But especially if you're, if you're in C-class properties, there's very, very rare that all you got to do is paint it and clean it. Yes. Right. Typically there's some, you know, CapEx involved. I mean, uh, especially on a harder C, a normal turn might be two, three, four, five thousand um, $5,000. So that's a huge expense. And so not only is it the monetary expense, but if your maintenance team or your contractors are spending time turning those units, they're not spending time doing just the normal work orders and keeping the residents happy. And then that, and, or they're not, they're not addressing deferred maintenance or they're not addressing routine maintenance, which becomes deferred maintenance. So turnover is a huge, huge opportunity for, uh, for keeping expenses down. Uh, let's see. And then also, um, you know, one thing we do, if we're doing a renovation, we look at hardening the units, right? So if you put carpet in a property, especially again, a, you know, B minus or C, that carpet, no matter how good it is, just doesn't last long, right? People just, they stain it, their dog chews it, that, you know, 
I, I, I don't, I don't, sometimes I still can't comprehend what some people do to these carpets, but it, it is the way it is. And so you end up replacing that all the time. So if instead of that carpet, you put in a extremely, it's more expensive the first time, but an extremely durable, uh, let's say uh, like plank, vinyl plank faux wood flooring, not only does it look nicer and you can often get more rent for it, it's much more durable. And if somebody damages it, you just pull up those couple of planks, put in new ones, and you're good to go. You don't have to replace the entire thing. Same thing with, with, uh, with countertops. It's very tempting to spend 150 bucks to resurface a countertop. Well, the minute someone puts a scalding hot pan on that, on that countertop, it's ruined again. Right, and now you've got to either resurface it, and you, you, it's just an ongoing thing. So we've actually, in, in some properties, started going with quartz or uh, with the, the quartz material, which is harder than granite, and it's almost indestructible. So that we know, you know, we run in that particular property. We plan to own it for ten years. We're not going to have to touch those countertops for ten years. We're not going to be resurfacing them. We're not going to be replacing them. They are done. Uh, so that's another thing we do is, is if, if we're going to hold the property for more than a few years, which we typically are, we try to harden the units to just reduce long-term ongoing maintenance expenses. Thank you. Uh, this has been phenomenal so far, and I know you're running out of time. So uh, just to wrap it up, a couple of uh, quick questions. If you could go back in time to Andrew in 2007, before you got started in uh, apartments, What's the best advice you would give yourself? Uh, well, I, I, started the, I started the apartments in 2011. Sorry, and what, um, so if I went back to 2011, um, I'd probably say, hey, you know what? In 2019, you're going to invent time travel, and that's going to make you far richer than anything else. So don't worry about all this real estate business. Um, but uh, uh, no, I, you know, I, what I would say is I, I would say, Number one, try, try to go straight to the, especially back at that point in the cycle, try to just go straight to the B properties. Don't, don't mess with the C stuff. It's funny, if you look, almost every operator, they, might, they start in C because the deals are easier to get, and then they move up to, to B or, and sometimes higher. So I would just, I would start in the B. Also, I would say, you know, at those earlier points in the cycle, not only buy B properties, but in the, in the beginning of the cycle, there's, I can't tell you how many times I've seen properties where in 2013 or 14, I didn't buy it because I didn't want to pay an additional $500 a unit. And now that would have meant absolutely nothing. There's, there's one property in, in the Houston area where the seller wanted 24 a unit for it, and it was a B minus property, good area. And I had it penciled out at 23.5 a unit, and we just ended up not getting a deal done. And I think three years later, I saw it come back on the market for 65 a unit. So how much did I lose? Because I just didn't wasn't willing to pay market at the early part of a cycle. Now today, I think that $500 a unit could end up being a lot more important. But when you're in early, early in the cycle, I, I you know, wish I had just uh, aimed a little lower on the returns and bought more, and uh, it would have worked out exceptionally well. Awesome. Thank you so much. Today was awesome. A lot of really good uh, information for our listeners, Andrew. Uh, do you want to take a couple of minutes to tell our listeners where they can find you? Uh, if they, uh, uh, they want to reach out, they want to network, they want to invest in one of your deals. 
Yeah, um, you know, I've, I've, I, you can connect with me on Bigger Pockets, LinkedIn. Uh, if you actually want to reach out or, or really connect, uh, our website is, is short for Vantage Point Acquisitions. It's vpacq.com. Um, it's not definitely not a fancy website. We should probably be about, about at the point where it should be redone and updated. But there is a contact us form on there. And if you put in your information, that comes directly to my email uh, inbox. And uh, I tried to get back with those as quickly as possible. Um, I do do reply to all of them. Uh, might not be within an hour, but uh, I will uh, I will get that and uh, will reply. So that's generally the best way. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Andrew, today. I appreciate it. All right. You're welcome, Joseph. Good talking with you.